0: This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad.
1: Heart Walk podcast. Today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Jackie Drew, an associate professor with the Griffith Criminology Institute at the Griffith Uni up in Queensland. G'day, Jackie. Hello. Jackie, your role following your 10 years as a police psychologist with the Queensland Police Service, I guess it came up with me uh, when I actually heard you talking about a research project that you've got going on came on the radio after the tragic shootings up in Queensland and you were talking about flow-on effects within police forces across the country. And, yeah, when I looked into it a little bit more, it, it really sounded like a an amazing project to be involved in by all uh, for the purposes of what you're looking into. So if we want it right back to the start, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself I guess, a a quick overview of what you did before your current role with the uni, but uh, certainly interested in what your current research project is.
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, So, in terms of where I started, so when I finished my psychology training, um, just looking for a job in psychology, and uh, back in the day, you looked in the newspaper for a job ad, and that's what I did, (laughs) and uh, Queensland Police Service had an ad there for a researcher, and so I began my work in equity and diversity in Queensland Police Service, and then moved into a, a more of a psychologist role, working with sexual harassment uh, within the agency. So helping those that had complaints about other officers to negotiate a mediation and conciliation process. And then I worked in lots of different areas of Queensland Police, so leadership centre in recruiting, uh, selecting coverts, um, and became very interested in how the organisational system of policing impacts on the mental health of officers who serve. So I spent about 10 years in Queensland Police, gave me a very good grounding in policing uh, and and I tried to go to what I call normal psychology for a couple of years in there um, outside of policing Mm -hmm. and was drawn back to the police environment um, because I think that the work that we can do as psychologists within policing is so valuable. Uh, So I I, I don't think I'll ever leave the policing environment and, you know, my heart really is in this work. So once I uh, finished up with the Queensland Police Service, I came back to the university, but very much in the space of researching and working back with agencies around improving the mental health of our police officers and anyone that works within the police agency. So uh, recently I've been awarded... A uh, three-year federally funded grant through the Australian Research Council and I'm working directly with uh, Commissioner Katarina Carroll who's our Commissioner of Queensland Police Service and we have a three-year project developing an, what we're calling an early warning system for police workplace health and performance. So there's been a lot of work done recently around trauma and individual interventions for officers Um, resiliency, mental health literacy, a lot of work done around post-traumatic stress. So that's a very individual type um, approach to understanding, in particular, the impacts of trauma on our police populations. What we're interested in our research is understanding that aspect, but going beyond that. So also looking at what is the organisational system and what the work of policing does to the mental health of our officers. So we look at organizational and operational stress as well as traumatic and critical incident stress. And our research really is designed in looking at how we can reform police workplaces in order to be healthy work environments for our officers. We know that trauma is impacting on our officers. but that necessitates oftentimes into individual interventions. So we mm. prepare our officers to face trauma and then we assist officers cope with what they have seen and what they, they've had to do as part of their work in critical incidents and traumatic events. What we often miss is that one of the key sources of harm that's impacting our, our officers is actually that organisational system. So we want to develop a preventative approach to make healthier workplaces before workplaces have the chance to cause harm to our offices.
1: It's a very interesting issue that you're talking about because very often the conversations that I have with people, both on the podcast and certainly privately, they talk a lot about how how much of an effect or compounding effect that workplace culture or workplace stresses actually have on the on the tasks that they've got. Actually often it's almost overridingly the focus of a lot of people uh, rather than the actual traumatic incidents individually that they're going to. They're actually more often talking about the actual intolerability of either the management or the workplace itself. So is your research looking at, I guess, the, how, how much that issue compounds those, the, the unavoidable traumatic event attendance type of uh, events that they're going to?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, working in policing for a long time, as you also did, um, you know, when I talk about the fact that trauma is just one part of the puzzle we need to understand, you get a lot of nodding heads uh, from police employees around exactly what you said about understanding that it often is a compounding effect. Um, yeah. so a, a story that I, I like to tell, which really cemented the idea that this research needed to be done. I thought it was a good idea, but an, and one particular officer really impacted on me. And I, I knew I had to do this research. And that was an officer um, that I was talking to that had experienced a death in custody. Uh, so he had experienced a traumatic or critical incident as, as we would call it. Um, and I asked him what was the one event in his career that he felt had the most psychological impact and he recalled the incident um, of that death in custody. And we talked about it for a while and he really was focusing on it, the characteristics of that event in his career um, that would be characterised as as the trauma uh, mm-hmm. of uh, a particular person losing li- their life under his watch and, you know, he had, sworn to protect and serve, um, and this was a particularly impactful event for, for him. As we talked about the incident more, he he stopped at one point and sort of looked at me um, and said to me, you, you know, at the more I talk about it, the more I realise that, of course, it was a trauma or a critical incident, that death in custody that impacted on me, but it was all the things that came after it and the things mm. that came after it was an investigation. Um, so he was under investigation for a number of years, which is a common story that we hear from officers. Um, and the fact that he felt that the his leadership, his super, supervisors um, weren't supporting him. They had quietly said to him, we know you did all the right things, you've got nothing to worry about, but, but didn't come out strongly to support him in that process. Yeah. His colleagues that couldn't contact him because he was under investigation and so we, we talked about that um, and it became very obvious that he felt that actually he probably could have recovered um, quite successfully from that critical incident or trauma. Um, it would have had an impact on him, but it was those organisational system factors that came after that really was the thing that, that caused the psychological harm. So the, the recent data that we've just starting to release from the Queensland Police Service, we looked at trauma, organisational and operational stress, and we looked at the proportionality in in the causes of burnout. And what we found is then when we look at those three factors simultaneously, trauma doesn't even predict burnout um, directly. It predicts burnout in the presence of organisational and operational stress. The story is a little bit different when we look at uh, psychological distress as the outcome. So when we look at psychological distress, trauma does have a direct relationship with psychological distress, so indicators of depression and anxiety, so we would assume that. But organisational and operational stress, again, is having a significant impact. We actually found that in terms of uh, predicting psychological distress, that organisational and operational stress causes three times the harm than a critical incident or trauma. Wow! Yeah, it tells us that the workplace has such a significant impact, which makes sense in policing. Um, you know, when when we sign up to to join a police agency as a as sworn officer, sworn officers sign up um, to join the police family, um, and they mm. often find um, and they expect trauma, they expect critical incidents, but they may not expect the enormity of what they will yeah, see. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but what they didn't expect at all is potentially their police family is, is the one that harms them the most.
1: Yeah, right. Wow, that's three times. That, that, is there any part of your research that is looking at, I guess, a, a mis... Well, I don't know whether to call it a misdiagnosis or, or a, a misread of a person's situation that they find themselves in uh, after... Obviously, I'm talking about people that have been in for a prot- protracted period... Mm. Um is there is there any part of your research is looking into whether people are being misdiagnosed with i guess stress related uh sorry critical incident or or traumatic stress related uh, conditions versus those organizational stressors uh in their life
0: There's a really interesting body of research that has has started uh with defense personnel and veterans um right. that I am now looking at in the police population because I think it has a lot of relevancy. So the research that's coming out um, around the defence or veteran population, uh, there was a a study that looked at the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and then looked at this concept of post-traumatic embitterment. So embitterment is the feeling that you've been undervalued You've been um, disregarded by your agency um, or, in this case, the Defence Force. So your, yeah. your service hasn't been valued. Um, and then you create feelings of anger and resentment towards the organisation because you're feeling that injustice of what you've given to serve and what you've gotten in return. So the yeah. research in that veteran community space has found that actually a large percentage of individuals who had originally been diagnosed with PTSD actually would have been more appropriate and to have a diagnosis or a uh, some sort of symptomology and then uh, intervention plan around embitterment disorder. Now, post-traumatic embitterment disorder is not in our diagnostic manual that we use to, okay. to make formal diagnoses yet. Um, there's been a push that we need this concept called post-traumatic embitterment disorder. Um, so it's it's a diagnosis, an informal diagnosis currently, but it has yeah, diagnostic okay. criteria. It's just not in the formal system. But um, it's really powerful to, to think about That a large number of those veterans that were studied, they were being treated for a stress disorder that had emanated from a critical incident. And that that was their intervention plan um, with the medical practitioners. And it was a little bit of a red herring, I guess, that there was a whole raft of issues that they were grappling with. um, That whole organisational system being undervalued by the agency that weren't perhaps being talked about or being addressed in the psychological intervention plan. So, you know, we think um, and we are collecting data right now through our Queensland Police uh, study around embitterment and what the potential prevalence rate would be of post-traumatic embitterment um, opposed to just focusing on um, stress that's emanating from that critical incident trauma. We also really want to unpack the trajectory of it. So is it the fact that, like the story I told before, that an individual experiences a traumatic incident and then accumulation on top of that is the organisational reaction and the organisational stress that comes with it? Or do they act independently? Um, Is it that uh, an individual can suffer significant psychological distress, independent even, of experiencing any critical incident that has caused them significant uh, impact. So it may be we have a whole group of officers that um, their psychological distress or their burnout is solely or predominantly being caused by the organisational system and can't actually be tied um, to a critical incident or a trauma.
1: Yeah, I'm just wondering because I'm just thinking back about the people that I, I interact with these days and... I wonder whether it's easier to tie it back to a particular event rather than actually trying to grapple with that complex, the, the complexities that you're talking about in a workplace setting, because there's so many factors at play there rather than actually going, okay, that accident or that, that particular event that I went to has caused all of this. I mean, you're talking about something that would be, I, I suppose, embedded in the organization's way of managing that individual, which is a lot harder to pinpoint, I guess, than than one one or, or you know, multiple similar type events.
0: Absolutely. So I think, yeah, I think that that's, that is the case. So I think it also uh, is partially uh, due to when police officers reach out to get uh, mental health support from professionals that often professionals because the person presenting comes from the first responder community, mm. will perhaps have a starting point that the reason this person has presented for assistance is because of that traumatic nature of their work.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So they perhaps won't even be thinking about there's a whole complexity of issues going on. And it may actually be, be nothing about the traumatic nature of the work that they did. It's about the, the organisational system. So I think that, um, you know, standing on the outside, and if we don't know a lot about the first responder population, it would make sense that when we ask people in the general community, why is it that we have such high rates of psychological distress and mental health diagnosis in our police? that They would say it's the bad things that they see. Um, you know, and we know that's certainly a case for a proportion of our population, but it's not the only thing we now need to be focused on. So, you know, we, we need to be more inclusive in our view opposed to being too myopic and understand mm. it is complex. Like you said, it's, it's easier to to think about, oh, it must be one incident because then we can focus on that and we can try to control it and we can try to unpack it and we can try to recover from an incident or a few mm, incidents mm. that we can clearly describe. How do we describe the feeling of distress that we've gotten because we feel like our supervisor just doesn't care about us
1: Yeah. or yeah.
0: our colleagues haven't been supported when we needed them the most? Um, so it, it's a, a grayer or more difficult um, thing to put your finger on uh, to yeah. say, actually, yeah, that's the connection with with how I'm feeling. That's what's harming me. In some ways, I think it's interesting um, that we have had a focus on um, critical incidents and trauma and the fact that it is becoming more normalised within our police populations, which is an amazing thing um, from where we came from a few years ago, that we actually now acknowledge that the traumatic work that police and first responders do does impact on their psychological health. And it's okay to put your hand up to say it does. Now, we've still got some way to go um, in that space, but we've come a long way um, in that in terms of trying to reduce the stigma. There's some recognition that, yeah, actually, we as police officers do some pretty crappy things um, and we see some terrible things and it's okay to be affected by it and to Mm -hmm. seek help. What I'm hoping is we can move the conversation to say it's also okay to say that if you feel undervalued by your agency and you feel like you're not treated fairly by your agency, that is the same as having psychological distress from a critical incident. You still should reach out for support you still have been damaged by the work that you have done and you've been harmed by it and and it's not a weakness to put your hand up in that instance, just like it's no. not a weakness to put your hand up when you've experienced a critical incident or a trauma.
1: And I, I know from personal experience when you combine those two things in a very short space of time, i.e. one incident, uh, I, I'm just thinking back about one particular job I was personally involved in that. You know, it was a really, really nasty body recovery. Like it was probably one of the worst ones I'd ever done. But right off the back of it, I was criticised for using a particular uh, resource that wasn't a police resource to do a, to do a task um, in mm-hmm. that after it was all, for the most part, sorted out. Um and yeah, I was pretty heavily criticised for utilising that other government agency. It was the was literally the fire brigade that I, I used mm. to help um, clean up. And yeah, I I got I I got enough quite a bit of uh, trouble actually, to be honest with you, um, for using them at that scene rather than and, and that was right off the back of having having to do it all myself. And I found that uh, you know I found that really. Tricky to rationalize in my head to think, hang on a minute, we're all, you know, emergency services people at this same incident. And and the criticism that I got for getting them to, like, I they, they was literally using their fire hoses to wash stuff down and stuff uh, mm-hmm. that I couldn't do as a police officer at the time. But I, I think I found it actually twice as hard to deal with because I was also a retained firefighter at the same time. So, I was, mm-hmm. I was actually an employee of both of those organisations at that point in time and knowing both of their capabilities, I utilised what I could. And... Yeah, gee, the trouble I got in, it. and to see that the support that was given to the fire brigade officers that were at the same incident, and what I didn't get, uh, I didn't get mm. any of the support they got, and I also got, uh, you know, I got, I had to write reports, I got in trouble, and mm. uh, that's stuck in my head, even though that was, you know, probably twenty years ago now. Uh, unfortunately, that's yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm hanging on to that for some reason in my head about how unfair I think that whole that whole thing washed up and yeah I'll be really interested to see how that pans out in your research yeah
0: yeah and I think it it's interesting because uh you know most police officers I know aren't looking aren't looking for thanks aren't looking Mm. for to have accolades for for the work they do they say this is the work we do this is what we signed up for Mm. and and we do our duty as we see that we need to do our duty but the thing is even though you weren't looking to go back to the station to be praised for what you do, the, the fact that you actually received the absolute reverse yeah, you know, reaction right. from your supervisor is the impactful part. So it wasn't yeah. like, oh, I expected to come back to my station and be told how wonderful I was. But, you know, I think in some ways that supervisor saying nothing would have been um, a much better scenario than the fact that you were punished. So um, the impact of leaders and our supervisors in agencies um, is so critical when we're talking about mental health and psychological distress. And that's not to blame our supervisors or leaders. So I often talk about particularly our middle managers, our sergeants and senior sergeants, that they've grown up in policing They've had
1: mm. their own mental health journey. Yeah. Their own. <laughs> this is something I always think about: is you know how well is my boss actually traveling? Looking back at it now, where I've where I am right now, I look back over the years and go, "Wow, that guy was really struggling." You know, like the the what he used to do and how he used to behave. I, I look back at it now, knowing what I know about you know trauma and and you know where I ended up, and I look back and think, whoa, <laughs> mm. <laughs> they shouldn't have been working." You know, some of them.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that that we have to tackle mental health and of our officers at all levels of the agency. So you know, we we grow our police officers from recruits in in Australia. Mm. So you know, there's very little movement across our agencies. Um, there's very few lateral transfers, other at the other than at the very top of our agencies. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, commissioners yeah. and deputies can move agencies. Um, So we grow our officers from recruits. So they've experienced these exact things that we're talking about um, for their 10, 15 year career until they got to that leadership or supervision position. And they've dealt with it in the way that they felt uh, their mental health journey, the, the way that they coped. So often when a supervisor or leader reacts, they're using their own experience. So if you've grown up, as a police officer, along your mental health journey, and and your strategy has been suck it up, um, and you know put it aside, don't don't deal with what's happening. Well, that's how I am going to approach my troops um, yeah, when I am the supervisor yeah. of them. So I am um, very strong component. I am doing work with the Australian Institute of Police Management now around some leadership training that any leadership training needs to start with the health of our leaders the mental health and the psychological distress of our leaders now and the journey that they've had through policing to get to that point and then once we have influenced the the health of our leaders we're going to have a greater impact on the health of those that they lead they're going to be by their example their understanding and the skills they're going to be in a much better position to to reach out and support the troops that that
1: now serve below them. It's one of those things, isn't it, where as you've described that journey of becoming a leader in, in the police force particularly having having had to have that background in it to get through to where they end up it is one of those cultural well I guess it's that it, it embeds that particular cultural stance within the organization and uh, it, it's such a big thing to try and turn around or even shift slightly I think in that sort of attitudinal space but one of the things that I've just been thinking while you're talking you, you, there's a lot of Queensland context to what you're talking about and the walk is obviously a, a national sort of uh, uh, concept and we have listeners all around the country. So is there a reason your research is limited to the Queensland Police Force and not the other police forces in the country? Or is that, was that the scope of your research grant or...?
0: So obviously I'm based in Queensland and, and previously worked for the Queensland Police, but I do work with agencies across Australia in mental health and I do work internationally in the United States with um, law enforcement over there. So the, the scope of the grant was um, looking for a, poli- a partner, uh, a police partner to come on board to run this three-year project and develop this early warning system and have a proof of concept Uh, And so I approached the Queensland Police Service um, and Commissioner Carroll, who's a real advocate, one of her um, mandates when she came into her commissionership was the mental health, particularly of frontline police. Uh, So she was very keen to get on board. Um, We hope that other agencies will see what we're doing and um, there's already been interest from other agencies across Australia. Um, They're interested in the work that we're doing. Um, So our scope is just Queensland Um, And we're hoping that the proof of concept that we can show in Queensland about what impact we might have through this early warning system will then um, inspire other agencies uh, that this is a a way to go um, in terms of managing and being more proactive around organisational system factors that impact on mental health uh, of police. Um, So, yeah, so the scope was Queensland, but it does have relevancy for any police agency.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it would uh, be a pretty well one size solution for for most of the other states and territories, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, working with other agencies across Australia, we're seeing the same things. There might be different priorities depending on each agency or slight variations, but overwhelmingly what we'll find, the connection between job demands and job stressors and psychological outcomes... I would be very, very surprised if if that relationship didn't stand up across all agencies. I mean, even working with officers in the United States, um, we're seeing the same things. So, again, we talked before about, you know, often standing on the outside, you think the thing that must be causing all the harm in policing is trauma and critical incidents. Standing on the outside and looking at US law enforcement, we might think, well, it's definitely going to be critical incidents and trauma for our US law enforcement brothers and sisters, right, because, um, you know, gun control over there, um, the amount of guns they have on the street, the Mm. danger of being a police officer um, and, you know, the violence, the level of violent crime in many parts of the US um, is something very fortunately we don't see here in Australia. Mm. When I go to the United States and, and... just completed a, a national survey with um, a big fraternal organization over there, the fraternal order of police. We're finding the same thing, um, which oh. surprised me. I thought trauma would be a critical instance, at least would be having a larger proportional harm um, on our officers over there. It comes down to the same thing. How how just, how fair, um, how valued am I by my police agency? That's still the thing that's impacting on them and still the thing that can alleviate the impact of trauma and critical incidents on psychological distress. So not only is it a cause, organisational and operational stress and having high levels of that is a cause of psychological distress in our police populations, it also can be the remedy. So if we increase organisational justice, for instance, we decrease embitterment, Um, Mm. because our officers actually feel valued as police officers within their organisation, we can have a significant impact. So it's interesting to see that even in the United States in different contexts, it's still playing out exactly the same way, the critical role that the police agency plays in the mental health of officers.
1: So, the, the embitterment piece, I think, was a fairly big feature in the interim report from the Defence Royal Commission, wasn't it? That sort of that, that factor. Is that, is that where you've based your research focus on from the Defence Royal Commission or was it other research that they've done?
0: So, it was before that. So, it's international okay. research that's looked at um, embitterment. So, uh, it was international research that first came up with the concept of um, post-traumatic embitterment disorder. Um, But, you know, for many, many years, probably since the beginning of time, we've talked about cynicism uh, in policing. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it has some um, tentacles, I guess, uh, that that connect embitterment and cynicism, obviously. The other thing I'd say that um, many of your listeners may have heard about or or interested in is around moral injury. Um, And moral injury has a component of organisational betrayal so organizational betrayal also similar to embitterment it's that feeling that um your organization didn't have your back when you needed them the most um so some of the concepts are are, are similar they've got slight you know variations and academics will fight about it forever about (laughs) (laughs) which which definition is better than another um but they're all all telling us the same story right um you know organizational betrayal embitterment They're all saying that if we can't get our organisational systems right to value the work that our police officers do, we're going to have some negative impacts. Um, We're going to lose officers um, to resignation and and medical retirement. Mm. We're going to lose them because, um, you know, they're suffering significant levels of psychological distress.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a time that's a timely message because from what I know around the country, virtually every police force is having trouble with recruitment and most of them are not even able to fill classes at the moment and looking at other, you know, international recruitment and all sorts of things just to keep the numbers of attrition up, let alone these promises that the politicians are making about increasing numbers. I mean, they can't even keep up with the recruitment levels that they need to sustain what they've got. So, yeah, it's a... Interesting piece, and I was just wondering is there is there any links that you've drawn or, or intending to draw in your research about this the issues that we're talking about being linked to levels of self harm or suicide within the agencies?
0: So part of our survey, um, we did ask about uh, suicide attempts and suicide ideation. Uh, so similar to the Beyond Blue survey that collected yeah. um, some of that data, um, we haven't we haven't looked at it too closely yet that particular part of the data set, but I think that that's something that we really desperately need to get um, a better handle on is we uh, I've done recently research with the Queensland Police around police suicide, looking for the first time in Australia of the numbers of officers who've died by suicide, not just in active service but also no. officers who've died by suicide after they left. Um, yep. we, we, off, we we no one has ever counted before how many officers who have left the service have died by suicide and they must be included if we look at what's the impact um, of policing on uh, suicide rates uh, in our yeah. population. So. Um, so we do have, in, so we do have some data in our survey. We haven't um, really drilled down on it yet, but I think it's really important that we start to understand um, ideation and suicide attempts. Um, one thing to understand the numbers of suicide that we we have in our populations, but we need to understand ideation and attempts because that potentially leads us to better able to design preventative strategies. Mm. Um, to understand that journey that officers have been on uh, much better. And we really do not have, to my knowledge, um, enough information about the prevalence of ideation and attempts uh, in our populations, which, you know, is obviously a very key sign of severe psychological distress. What we do know um, is that the Beyond Blue survey found about 12% Of officers uh, were experiencing severe psychological distress. We're finding very similar results still um, from our research in Queensland Police. Uh, About 12% of officers are suffering extreme or severe psychological distress. Uh, If we compare that to the Australian employed population, it's about 1.5% of the population will be in a severe distress category and we've got 12%. Um, And, you know, Queensland but also Beyond Blue showed nationally a very similar figure. People that are experiencing that severe distress um, are going to be having significant impairment on their work and home life um, because they're an early indicator of um, symptomology around depression and anxiety in particular. Um, So often I I think it's interesting because when we talk about, you know, rates of psychological distress or burnout, so... Um, you know, 12% of officers that have severe psychological distress and then we look at other police agencies um, here and across the world and we go, oh, yep, yeah, that's about how many we have about 10 or 12 percent fall in that right. severe distress category. Now we can then look at it and go, oh well, we're all the same They're, this must be okay like there's nothing really standing out here. But then yeah, when yeah, yeah. we put it in the context, Of what the normal Australian population looks like, and we've got 1.5%, it tells us across the world in policing we have a problem. Um, problem, So I think we always need to look not just at other police agencies and go, okay, we're all as bad as each other, essentially. What we need to do is, but actually, what do people outside of policing look like? Because that gives us insight into the impact of policing on psychological health much better than just looking at other agencies. And we found, you know, almost about 87% of our officers are suffering medium to high levels of burnout. Um, in the normal working population... Sorry, did you just say 80%? yep
1: eight zero eighty 8-0, yep. 80%. Wow. Yep.
0: About 86 87% um, medium to high levels of burnout. Compare that to the normal working population, um, about 50% of... Yeah. Uh, people will say that they're experiencing some level of burnout. And we've got, yeah, almost 90%, right, uh, of, of officers having medium to high levels of burnout. And that's psychological as well as physical fatigue. So when we talk about yeah. burnout, it's a combination of physical fatigue that might come yeah. from overtime and shift work, but it's also the psychological fatigue that's coming from being part of a particular workplace.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of those things blur into each other after a while. Like you, you can sustain in short bursts certain amounts of that stress or that overworking, but I think once it gets chronic, it's it embeds itself unfortunately.
0: The more burnout we have, um, the less likely we're able to cope. So burnout yeah. is on a continuum. Um, so when we're in the early stages of burnout, we sort of have the cognitive capacity to think about how maybe we can manage this, what coping strategies can we put in place, what can we do to alleviate feelings of burnout. Once we have chronic burnout, which we would say that police are experiencing given that they've got medium to high levels of burnout, once you get to a chronic stage of burnout, you don't have the cognitive capacity to work out how to remedy your situation.
1: You come up Um, with your solutions, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: you're psychologically exhausted um, and your, your range of ability to think about options um, to recover from the stress you're experiencing becomes narrower and narrower and narrower because your cognitive capacity is focused on just putting one foot in front of the other.
1: Is there any part of your research just talking about that exact point that will explore how much more vulnerable to uh, traumatic incidents that you become when you're in that state, because I, I know a lot of the, a lot of the people that I've I've heard talk about resilience to stressors in both defence and emergency services worlds, talks a lot about maintaining your ability to stay resilient to those traumatic, or or you know hyper stressful events that that happen in your in in the line of your service, and then if we're talking about having over 80% of the workforce teetering on the edge of that you know that burnout piece then that's got to put a fairly big chink in your armor to be able to manage those unfortunate events that you you invariably ever uh, invariably have to attend so is there any party research looking directly into that part
0: yeah disentangling um the chicken and the egg is often difficult but you know we have strong <laughs> yeah. research around cumulative post traumatic stress now so yep. we you know readily acknowledge that you know in years gone by i guess with post traumatic stress we thought about one critical incident or trauma we now know particularly in first responder populations and policing that it it's not once it can be one single event absolutely But more often than not, it's the accumulation. And then absolutely what you're saying is correct in terms of as we pile on more and more experiences, uh, it erodes our ability to cope. It erodes our ability to be resilient. It erodes our ability to bounce back. So we often talk about um, with officers when we're talking about the impact of these cumulative stresses about, you know, think about having a backpack on your back right now. And think about all the things that you might have experienced in your 15-year career. Think about critical incidents and trauma. Think about the organisational and the operational factors that have impacted on you. And each one of those things is a rock in your backpack, a pebble in your backpack. And think about how many pebbles go into that backpack over a 15-, 20-, or 25-year career. And often we don't realise, because it's one little pebble at a time, we don't realise until it just at some point there's a tipping point and it becomes too heavy for us to carry. And that's the point of chronic burnout or exhaustion. Um, yep. And then at that point we we don't know how to shed the backpack because it's just too heavy and we just keep trudging on, carrying that heavy backpack, trying to cope.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think there there definitely is a point that you just go into coping mode and, yeah, I I, I can see how that can really – Erode your ability to to navigate those other stressors that are part of the job and and your and your life generally because the unfortunate side of, well the reality of it is, is as you'd know from your time as a police psychologist that it flows onto the family and uh, these things impact your whole whole life in in and out of work. So,
0: I think with the you know the the analogy of the backpack is we've got to get better as organisations and you know individuals of realising when our backpack's half full. Um, So not waiting to that point. But in order to, you know, I guess encourage our officers to make an earlier call, we have to have supportive mechanisms in place for them to do so. We -hmm. need to ensure that it's okay for our officers to go, I'm not at the stage of chronic burnout yet, Um, I'm not at the stage where I have to think about medical retirement, but... I acknowledge that I'm on that track and mm. putting their hand up and not being punished for putting their hand up that they haven't waited until they're about to fall over before they seek help. So often we, once officers get to that point um, of, you know, falling over, we, we swoop in hopefully and we, we put all the support mechanisms in place. But we have to do that much earlier. Why are mm. we waiting for our officers to get to such a level of harm that it's an, an emergency situation. Yeah. We need to take yeah. five steps back and when that backpack's half full and say, what can we do now? Do you need to sit out? Do you?" And that has to be a joint conversation. So an officer can't be just taken off the road um, mm. or their service weapon taken off them because that's a punishment. It needs to be a mm. joint conversation. What can we do? that is going to work for you in your current circumstance that will give you a break, that will relieve the pressure, that will give you that ability to have the cognitive space to recover and then you're back to fully functioning an officer back on back on the road if that's where you work.
1: Yeah, you've hit the reset button but it, it's exactly the conversation I had with someone recently where I talked about Wishing I had have had more acknowledgement about the job that I was doing back when I was doing it, about the effect that it was was going to have on me, and actually going, okay, this is going to knock me around. These are all the strategies that I really need to focus on to keep myself going well and and doing it as well as I can. Because as you said, you get to this point where you're really not optimum, you're absolutely not functioning in an optimal state, but you're functioning well enough to stay at work, but then if you hang on too long too tight I think it unfortunately it makes the choice for you and it it Mm. no longer is within your control to actually uh, you know make choices that can bring you back out of that state I think it it actually gets hold of you and as you said you're cognitively not in a position to make rational choices about how to look after yourself after a certain point and then yeah, you, all you can do is hang on and then uh, unfortunately when that thing happens, it it makes a choice for you all right and doesn't leave it up to mm. you anymore. Um, mm.
0: And I think this is only going to get worse with, um, you know, we, we mentioned before we were talking about the difficulty in recruiting uh, officers and, you know, we're also facing a significant amount of our officers about to retire. So in yeah. Queensland, we have a mandatory retirement at 60 Um, So we've got a lot going out at the end of their career and we're finding it difficult as across Australia and the US, they're finding it difficult Mm. to recruit. What does that mean for the officers that are currently there? It's only going to exacerbate (laughs) their burnout. I mean, they're going to be under-resourced. We know one of the critical um, operational stresses and organisational stresses is lack of resources and staff shortages. Yeah, Um, staff shortages, yeah. Yeah, staff shortages is, comes out nearly top of the, the list um, yeah. across all different surveys about staff shortages uh, is the thing that's impacting on our offices the most. And we're in a context right now that that's going to be exacerbated. We're asking our offices to do more um, with less than perhaps we have ever done or in recent times mm. we have done because we simply do not have the human resources Um that are covering what we need to cover um, in terms of our policing functions. So um, in terms of mental health support and getting people to put their hands up early, it's never been more critical to, to get to that point that officers can do that and sit out for a week or two weeks or take some leave, have that, you know, release that pressure valve and get them back as healthier and fully functioning than waiting Um, to the point where our officers actually are leaving our agencies Um, we we can't afford to lose our officers we need we need to keep them healthy and safe
1: yeah yeah and actually I I was having a conversation with someone from New South Wales Police recently where it was mentioned that the amount of people that had left uh, and that was you know people that had literally had enough and walked out or, or opted out in some of the more recent programs. So the flow on of that has resulted in those probably not so well-informed middle, and, uh, middle managers actually coming back and directly putting pressure on the people left to say, these people have let you down, you're mm-hmm. now going to have to pick up the slack to make up for what they've done to you and making it sound like these people are then being punished for their mates letting them down or even being referred to as letting them down because they've opted out i just find that that cultural position in that even just the the way that's framed and and phrased to the to the people left is just it's damaging it's got to be damaging and uh, and look on that note. I'm just wondering: Do you have at this point in time a, a view on how your research will look as a as an end product, or how that will come full circle into implementation phase? What that will actually look like?
0: So the the research that we're doing in the survey and the data that we've been talking about is to be used to develop a predictive model. So and at sort of work unit or workplace um, district level, uh, how our our state's divided into lots of different districts, so a district level or a work unit level. And what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to map the specific types of stress that are happening in particular areas across our state. So we'll be able to prioritise which are the factors that are causing most harm to our officers uh, in individual areas. So we're very good in policing about deciding that there's one cause of a problem and then rolling things out across the state like, oh, it must be bad leadership, so let's train, let's train every leader in the entire state um, <laughs> around leadership training and that will fix our problem. Now, yeah. seven of the 20 districts might have had bad leadership but there was 13 that actually that intervention is useless. So yep. what we're doing with our data is, um, and to use an analogy from our good friends in fire, to direct the hose at the right spot, um, <laughs> is we're able to identify well, for your district, for, what, for your work unit, what is it that's impacting on your offices right now? Um, and what are the mitigating factors that we need to, to pump up um, and to better implement in your particular work unit? in order to offset the psychological and burnout effects um, that the organisation and the, the work that policing is having on your offices. So, um, so that's sort of the implementation that, that the data provides us a very clear view, a very um, specific view around what are the, the psychosocial risk hazards that we talk about that's coming up in new, new legislation, um, what are the harming factors that are happening for your district, then that tells us what interventions we need. Um, And then we're hoping to uh, keep collecting data on a rolling basis. So we'll be able to say, look at a district. Um, We've identified what, what the harms are in that district. We've put interventions into that district. So it might be leadership training. It might be some more peer support training and more peer supporters in that particular district. And then we come back a year or two years later and then we measure all our metrics again. And we can see how it's been effective or not. So it's going to give us the ability to also work out what's going to work um, Mm. in being proactive in the future. The thing I'm really excited about is as we collect the data over time and we develop these predictive models, we'll be able to be truly preventative. It will be able, through the model, we'll be able to determine if, say, a district is on a slippery slope. Do, does a district have indicators that if they're left unchecked are likely in a short period of time result in higher levels of burnout or psychological distress for the staff in that particular district? So mm. the the thing that we need to get better at in policing is prevention. So mm. we often wait for harm to occur and then we respond. Hopefully we respond. Um, we need to stop harm before it has the chance to impact on our officers. And, the, and as we talked about right at the beginning, we can't take away trauma. But if we know that organizational and operational stress is causing the most harm, we can prevent that. We mm. can change those factors significantly. And by changing those factors, we're going to reduce that almost 90% of burnout. burnout and that almost 12% of severe psychological distress. We're going to really have a significant impact on those things if we can make healthier workplaces for our officers. Our officers Mm -hmm. um, do amazing work, are amazingly resilient to the the trauma and the incidents that they face, and we need to make sure that our police agencies aren't letting those officers down. the organization and our police family is the safe place um, that we say it is and in our culture we talk about where where the police family and you come back to us and we'll support you. I yeah. think you know over time maybe we've lost our way a little bit and yeah. and we need we need to make sure that police do truly feel that their agency is the safe place to fall
1: yeah and it's it is one of those identity things i think that you're so loyal to this place that as you said you know most people join fairly young spend a lot of their formative years in that job and they're very attached to it with respect to their identity and i think when that sours the massive impact that has is is devastating on the individual and this and i don't any basically everything that we've spoken about knowing Uh, you know fire services and people I know from ambulance they're all suffering Mm -hmm. very similar issues I guess in the sense of you know struggling with short staff numbers management Mm. issues or cultural issues and on top of that everyone's obviously getting exposed to traumatic incidents that's the line of work we're all in but yeah it's such a um I can see the massively wide reach your research will in in in, in time have across other agencies as well. But uh, yeah, that piece about having that, um, you know, as you said, moral injury linked to that org- feeling, the feeling of the organisation failing you. Mm. That's such an important part, and that's why I uh, I think the. It's probably one of the biggest hurdles on the way out and, and, and policing's terrible because i I, I know it, I shouldn't say that strictly policing's bad in the sense of not recognizing former members, and yes. there's horrible sayings this this horrible saying of there's nothing more X than an X. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, that that's prominent in the other agencies. I don't think they treat their former members. For some reason, the policing culture is once you're out, you're out. And you're not one of us anymore. And that's really that's uh you know, while you're in, you know that time and that 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 moment is coming for you if you're if you're scared about things affecting you too much and maybe being forced out or or opting out um, and knowing that 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 you're gonna face that hurdle of you're out, you're an ex. And yeah. that's very that's a scary, scary concept. And I don't know why it's so well programmed into everybody to have that attitude. I, I don't get it because I don't think defence is really like that. I don't think the other agencies are like that. But definitely policing, it's yeah. got this culture of really excluding former members. And, and I think, yeah, that's a scary concept. And I, and I do wonder whether that's why a lot of people actually hang in for so long because they're scared. that So much of their identity is bonded to this this thing this policing thing and then they're so scared of losing it knowing on the other side of that they're an ex and they're one of them and they're on the outer and it's you're not part of that family anymore it's and I think that that you've um,
0: hit the nail on the head when you talked about identity and and this is why we have such impact around organizational justice and embitterment is because when your identity is tied up with um, you know, your role as a police officer being part of the police organization, and then yeah. you feel slighted or undervalued by the very thing that you tie your entire identity to, yeah. it has a devastating impact. And then I would say, around identity, that the struggle with losing identity is something that I think we need to understand much more. And I don't know yeah. either. I've, you know, Across the world, I hear the same. There's nothing more X than an X cop, and I'm not sure where it ever came from. Because I think you're right. I think defense, um, there's there's a little bit of that, but much much less. And defense personnel seem to be able to. People tell me that they feel that comparatively, defense personnel can leave with dignity um, from the defense force. We we don't. I don't think have the same that police officers feel that they leave with the same level of respect Mm. for their service after they've gone Um, but the research that I did around um, police suicide said that officers uh, were struggling with their identity so officers Mm. who had taken their life uh, active officers, officers that were still in service um, doing a lot of analysis around coronial files and their personnel files one of the conclusions I came to was that that officers were struggling with the loss of identity. So they knew that continuing to work in their current workplace or their current role in policing was harming them. They had insight into the psychological impact um, that that it was causing them. But the thought of leaving the agency was too much. Mm. So they were in that um, no-win situation of knowing that maybe the best thing for them was to go and to, to get out of the situation that was causing them harm. But the thought of, yes, making that leap to the outside and losing their identity was something that they didn't also want to face. Um, so mm-hmm. there was that real dilemma. And, and we also, I also saw that um, in the officers that had left the service that died by suicide after leaving the service and many of them had gone out on medical retirement even during the workers' compensation process, and we know, um, you know, I don't think anyone can say that the workers' compensation process often does not damage our officers more than the Mm. original harm. Um, So that process, even as officers went through that process of workers' compensation that was compounding um, the harm they were experiencing, there was certainly still evidence of that struggle with identity. Um, mm. so they were they had an incident or a series of incidents that had set them on the path of going out on medical retirement. They were being frustrated and there was anger and embitterment around the process of how they were being moved out of the agency through medical retirement, but there was still a lot of indication that that their identity was still police and how mm. and how they were they going once they'd left those doors at the police station for one last time, how were they to cope once they'd left the agency? Uh, um, so I think the the identity, the, how we transition officers out um, at the end of their careers, whether that be retirement or whether some of our officers need to go out um, under medical retirement provisions, but also just giving officers the opportunity to be able to leave the agency when they self-identify that they've had enough mm. um, yeah, yeah. and still maintain that that respect that mm. they had given 5, 10, 15 years of service to our community. Mm. How do we still respect those officers so they can go on to different careers? I, yeah. I, I don't have the answer to that one, but it's something that I think we need to work on, definitely. Mm.
1: To take that fear of that nothing more x than an x type of concern uh, out of the picture. I mean, that's why that's why I'm so interested in what Victoria is doing with their police veterans Victoria organisation, which is you know well supported by the Victoria Police Force itself uh, in recognition of members that have you know served and left, what be that res- resignation, medical retirement, whatever ill health. Um, you know there is that place that they can go to and and just by virtue of the name of it, it is, you know, it is there to recognise them as a policing veteran. I Mm. think they're the only jurisdiction in the country that's got an organisation like that that's specifically, you know, even by its name, Police Veterans Victoria, it's supported Mm. by the police force in Victoria. Um, You know, I think that's an important step. But uh, just, just going back a little bit, what you were talking about, the workers' compensation type system... I won't go down that path too much because we'll be here for another hour. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I- I'm unfortunately a living example of how bad that mm-hmm. can go. And mm. and uh, a- as you've you know pointed out, it's it's a devastating blow when you get a letter in the mail with your name mm. on it saying we've we're declining. Mm. And you know, you've got this employer that you've given the majority of your working life to. You've done absolutely crazy stuff for and, and think wow how could i possibly have done all of those things for you in that uniform and then here i am reading a thing to say no under these legal clauses we're we're not we're not looking after you we're not accepting we're not accepting what you're saying is happening to you and you know that that in itself i mean the the damage that one moment can have is is long lasting but yeah there is something about that workers compensation process too i think is a, is a daunting as is, is a daunting pipeline to enter and i do wonder whether or not those horror stories that everybody hears about it is one of the reasons sometimes people just hang on too long and and as you'd be well aware of is that that the the compounding problems with your treatment that that happens when you are in a sustained state of, uh, I suppose, denial, uh, and you you embed those practices and that condition in your in your entire being. It makes it so much harder to treat um, because you've you've not gotten onto it earlier. It's uh, it's a big problem. It's it's got a lot of factors that need to get unpacked. And yeah, you know. we
0: need to in we need to recognise the human element of that process much more. Mm-hmm. and the impact that that process has on our officers that are going through it. Um, yeah. It often becomes very focused, obviously, on proportioning blame and proportioning harm and, and working out how much compensation you'll get and how much the organisation is liable. And it, it becomes very mechanical. Um, mm. And we forget that it's a human behind that, yeah. the mechanics <laughs> that are going on. and it's, And it's yeah. a human that has provided service to their community have suffered as a result of that service that they've given yeah. to the rest of our community um, and need to be duly recognised and supported in the process of uh, allowing that person um, to fully understand the process and to be be treated with the respect during the process. Um, yeah. Because many of our officers... Um, we should be encouraging some of our officers to 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 leave the service and go on to have productive Absolutely. and successful yeah. lives after um, yep. and and it, you know and we should be praising those officers that have put their hand up and recognized that the best thing for them and the organization um, is is to leave the organization, but we have to let them leave with dignity and the respect of the service that they had um, and then go on to those very productive careers that we know Hmm. police officers can engage in when they leave the service
1: yeah they shouldn't be leaving with one last moral injury from the
0: process (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah
1: yeah hey look thank you so much for your time today i'm i'm really keen to see actually what the end product of this is in you know particularly obviously queensland is going to have a good uptake of it but um you know, the, what you're looking into just has relevance to so many agencies, you know, across the country. I I really hope that there's a, you know, a, a huge uptake of of these research outcomes and how they can. And, and, you know, the more we learn about how to keep people resilient to the, the traumatic events that they have to go to in that line of their work, you know, that has to be the focus going forward, as you said, in that preventative space and trying to make people robust to these these demanding jobs and you know this is this research is you know really exploring some of those organizational factors that can uh, you know hinder or help uh how that goes Mm. I guess so yeah really looking forward to seeing it is there anything that you're looking at beyond this research at this point in time or um you know is it is it early days is it too early and 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 I guess one thing I haven't asked you is when do you think you'll be finalizing the research
0: So we still have a year or so to go on the the grant. So um, we've done a big, the big um, study in terms of the big survey that we did to collect all the metrics that I'm talking about. The next part of the study is to interview police officers. Um, So the data tells us some very interesting stories and, you know, overlay my experience in policing and and knowing um, how police agencies work. We can make Um, conclusions about what we think is going on, what's the connection between one thing and another. Uh, But what I want to do in the next stage of our research is give a voice to police officers to tell Mm. their story. Um, And it will be those stories that give life to the data. Um, I want to be able to, when I present information about burnout or psychological distress or embitterment and I get the opportunity to to have a forum, whether that be with the troops or to senior leaders in particular, I want to be able to tell them the stories of officers that have told me the impact of um, those factors on them yeah. because that's going to be meaningful um, and it, I think it's going to be very clearly shine a light on the human element that we were talking about before. Yeah. We're not talking about numbers. We're not talking about yeah. percentages. We're not talking about statistics. Every Something time we say that we've lost, <laughs> yeah, nine officers in the to suicide in the last 10 yeah. years, that's nine individual people that we have lost. It's not yeah. nine in terms of a data set. So um, yeah. the next stage is to do the interviews because I want to be able to use the actual voices of police officers to explain the impact of the data that we're seeing um, yeah, and then right. hopefully get some yeah. traction. Um, so, I mean, I, I have to acknowledge that the Queensland Police Service uh, signed up to this project. Um, Commissioner Carroll has come on as a named partner on the project. So, um, yeah, right. she, yeah, she hasn't put it down the ranks in terms of someone lower in the organisation. Yeah. That's my industry partner. She is actually my partner in the research. So, um I do give kudos to Queensland police for putting their hand up. Um, any police agency that puts their hand up for research around mental health and psychological distress doesn't know what we'll find. Um, so mm. it takes some bravery to say we we want to know. We want to know the mm. answer. We know it may not be what we want to hear, but we want to know the answer. And that's what Queensland yeah. Police Service did. So um, I'm very grateful to work with them and... Um, the next step would be if we can uh, convince some other police agencies to come on board, and I mean, to have a national database uh, around workplace health and performance uh, of Australian police um, would be an amazing outcome if we can get there. Yeah, wouldn't but, it? Um, yeah,
1: it would be nice to have. Uh, it would be nice to have better data on it too. I mean, some of the things that, particularly around suicide and self harm, the data I think is pretty. Pretty ordinary across the board, and and certainly in its capture is unstructured in that sense, and will all, probably always be problematic until it's more structured data capture in the first instance. But
0: and that was, you know, a recommendation from the Senate inquiry um, in two thousand and eighteen, yeah. wasn't it? Um, yeah. That that we needed a national database around suicide yeah. Um, statistics. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a. I know. I know. There is a lot of organisations that think they're capturing that data, but until I see, you know, proper <laughs> structured data capture with mandatory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, interrogation of somebody's background, I, I I can't believe that that's actually comprehensive and and you know a valid data set because it's just not. But they're just not capturing it. <laughs>
0: You yeah know, and particularly yeah.
1: post service and, and other agencies like there's so many people that have you know had a, had a main job throughout their life but have been a volunteer in one or two or more volunteer emergency service agencies that will never be recognized should something happen to them down the track that they are a former emergency services worker it's just the data the, the data granularity is just not there and that needs mm-hmm. to be and that's uh, sadly i yeah it's one of those things that that's why it was made into a recommendation unfortunately uh, <laughs> No one's really actioned that one, but uh, like the rest of them. Well, I
0: mean, yeah, as I said, yeah, Queensland Police have the um, the first ever database now from the research that I did um, with the Commissioner and Assistant Commissioner, Brian Codd, um, yep. the first ever database of active and retired or um, officers who've left the service around suicide. Yeah. So if we could get that at a national level and, you know, and have the level of analysis that we did, um, I think we could really... Have some really key insights that would work in the prevention space. So
1: we'll, yeah, we'll keep putting
0: one foot in front of the other, Matt, to yeah. try to <laughs> shake the trees until we can yeah. get it to
1: happen. Yeah, that's right. It's a it's a big beast, and as you said, yeah, it's one 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 bit at a time, and we we will get there hopefully in the long run. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and explaining your research. And look, if People are interested in finding out more about it. How would they go about getting in touch with you or finding out more about the research that you're doing?
0: Yeah, so if you um, just, so I'm at Griffith University. If you just put my name, and Drew Griffith University, into a Google search, I should be the first person that, uh, that comes <laughs> up. So um, very happy for people to reach out if they're interested in the research, um, they want to know more about it, uh, they want uh, to, you know, keep in touch I every time I'm on LinkedIn and also Twitter. So anytime I publish any research or have reports, um, I I put that up on LinkedIn and Twitter so people can access the information and read it. So um, if they want to follow me um, on LinkedIn or Twitter as well, i um, happy for them to do that so they can get it uh, fresh, hot off the press, presses when I, when I publish Yeah, theater.
1: good ones. I'll put so, the links to those in the uh, show notes of the podcast. So uh, Oh, yeah, yeah that would be great. Be in there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Look, thank you again for your time. I know you're a busy person, and uh, uh, we we all actually really appreciate the work that you're doing for, particularly the police uh, sector. But that the flow-on and more general uh, benefits that will come of it for the other agencies—it's certainly well, uh, well, well recognized. And gee, I tell you, the exactly what you're talking about, I think, is something that's on people's minds—is you know that link between. Or other organisational stressors and, and the impact of those things on top of what's already a tough job for everybody out there. So, yeah, it's uh, Thanks, a really Matt. interesting it's research.
0: A, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and also it it truly is a privilege to work with our law enforcement community across Australia. So I want to thank you for your service you've given and any of your listeners that are in the First Responder community, I thank each and every one of you. Um, for the service that you give. You don't get enough thanks um, and you do it often at personal cost. So remember there's people yeah. out there that truly appreciate your service. So thank yeah. you.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. Thanks again.
0: You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast, people on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heartthe number 2 heartwalk.org or just google it.